Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. How about a single best chart right now? We'll do this with David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan. And he mentioned earlier in the hour the C word, courage. Uh, the courage to act. Let's look at a single best chart which defines how lonely Europe is right now. This is Swiss 20-year with a normal yield here in August of 2007. The great deflation. We flatten and we've just rolled over again. And I would suggest, David, that this is a linkage of courage into theory, and not only for the ECB, but for all of us, the theory of how we've extricated ourselves from this crisis is really under test. Oh, yes, it is, because one of the things that's happened, you know, there are things that are pushed down inflation in the long run, including information technology. Right. One of the big things is QE basically causes asset prices to go up more than real output. Um, it also tends to help push income towards upper-income individuals. The snag is upper-income individuals don't spend the money. Exactly. And so what happens is you produce $100 worth of output, you produce $100 of income with it, but the income doesn't actually come around by the output. So this, this process of actually gr this growing wealth gap and growing income gap is actually sucking demand out of the global okay. economy. So you've got to do something, oddly enough, very egalitarian to try and actually generate more aggregate What's demand. What's so important here, and I continue to go back to this, I know I can do this with you with your work with Bob Goodman a million years ago. Look at the x-axis. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this for a decade. Exactly. It's not one year in or three year in. My Marvin Goodfriend would say do a two-year experiment. It, it is the it's definition of insanity. It's a 12-year experiment. <laughs> How do we extricate ourselves off the x-axis? Well, I think, I think actually we need to look at this distribution issue and the issue of <clears throat> aggregate demand in the economy itself. Oddly enough, if we think about taxation and spending in a way to give more money to lower and middle-income people, they will spend it. Then you get $100 worth of spending for $100 worth of output, and suddenly the economy picks up. It's one, I mean, I'm not saying that because I believe in great income redistribution uh, as, a, as a good thing in, in general, but actually as an economic palliative, it probably would work. Uh, but you can't fix it through monetary policy. Uh, low interest rates yeah. will not fix this Francine? problem. Right. Okay, David, let's, you know, take it the other way around. If there is a recession, yep. does, do central banks have enough tools to deal with it? Um, no, but, but, they, but I, I would argue that the, what central banks can do is what they could always do, which is that they, can, they can be a buyer of last resort and they can protect the financial system and then allow the economy to recover by itself. Uh, I think the economy will tend to recover by itself anyway. Uh, but um, I don't think that, uh, you know, another 25 basis points or 50 basis points would actually stimulate economic growth. It hasn't done it in Japan. It hasn't done it in Europe. I don't really think it did it in the United States either. I think that was more cyclical forces which uh, pulled the economy back up, natural cyclical forces rather than, uh, rather than monetary stimulus. So I'm not too worried about them not having tools in their toolkit because, frankly, I think they're ineffective anyway. But I do think we need to think very honestly and carefully about how, how is it that, that monetary policy is not pushing up inflation pushing up aggregate demand and think about how do you get aggregate demand going? Let's just think about how do you get demand going in an economy? And you can do it by giving more money to lower middle income consumers or you can create more certainty for businesses and that means get rid of you know, trade wars, get trade certainty, get immigration certainty, try right. to have more policy certainty and that will promote more investment spending and that can also give you aggregate demand. But you've really got to think directly about how do you get demand going in an economy and that's really outside of the purview of central banks.
Right, and, and that's one of the concerns, actually, that Japan has had to grapple with for, for many decades. Is Europe becoming like Japan? Uh, there, well, I think there, there's, there are some similarities, of course. I think you've got demographics not as badly, bad as in Japan, but you've got so, some problems. Uh, but I think you, you do have some positives. I mean, the unemployment rate is still coming down in Europe. They've still got about 8% unemployment in Japan. It's like 2.5%. Um, so Europe has got more unutilized resources. And they also didn't have the huge asset bubble that really propelled Japan to the problems it had. And, and the third advantage that Europe <coughs> has is, despite the problems we have in Italy, or certainly the problems we have in Greece, the aggregate debt of Eurozone countries is far smaller relative to Eurozone GDP than is the case in Japan. So I think Japan has gone, is, is a lot further down a, that sort of miserable path than Europe is. Let's clear markets. David Kelly knows his chart. He and I lived it. I'm just making this up quick, folks. We're throwing this out. Jimmy, I'll get this to you in a bit. This is Allied Irish Bank from another time and place. And what the Irish did, they had the courage to clear the market, going from 5,000 to essentially zero, five euros or whatever it is uh, per share, is all we're talking about is Europe has a fear they can't clear their troubled financial system? Well, I think, I think that's, that's obviously it, it, it's, it's a problem. They need to be a little and, more and Irish? Well, well, the Irish did, you know, that was very controver controver controversial because what the Irish did is they oh, loaded on, and they had the courage to get out front of everybody else and clear the banking well, system. Well, they also, they also suffered a huge recession because yeah. of it and they, and they did take on a lot of responsibility upon the Irish people for stuff that really was the responsibility of international investors. I, I, I think, you know, history is un, un, you know, unclear on whether they did the right thing or not. But Ireland has, what they did do is they took the tough fiscal medicine, they made, they made the tough fiscal choices, they, they, and, and the population put up with it, and so Ireland has bounced back. Um, but I think, the, but to be honest, the Irish political system actually works rather well. I mean, you know, relative to what you see in the U.S. or in Britain, there are relatively mm. logical choices being made by the major parties on both sides to keep Ireland on a relatively even keel. And that, and that, I think, is also helping. Politics does matter. I could just see you, me, Vani Quinn, Francine, all of us in Dublin going over the success of the Irish clearing of markets. It was truly courageous, as David mentioned, a real debate about how Ireland did it. But, boy, that was something back in 07, 08, 09. David Kelly, thank you so much. With JP Morgan, Asset Manager. One of the joys of my year is the Quinnipiac Conference with a, just a thousand college kids. It's a great, great moment in New York and even better. Frances Donald joins me on stage uh, this afternoon over at one of our larger hotels. She is with Manulife uh, and uh, in strategy and economics there as well. Frances, it's great to get up on stage with 1,200 kids or whatever it is and explain the idiocy of the media and the frenzy and hysteria. Right now, let's pretend we're at Quinnipiac this afternoon. What is the hysteria right now that most upset you that we need to ignore? Well, I certainly take a different approach than you do, Tom. What I'm going to talk about today for the first time in the several years that we've been doing this is we're at end cycle. This is the first possible recession that these kids have seen in their adult lifetime and that many right. of us in this industry will experience firsthand. So you're calling recession 2020 as you have before. So we certainly have been looking at the very high or the much higher probability of a 2020 recession. And it looks like the markets have come into this framework as well. Now, the big question that I have now, and I have been a 2020 recession believer, is that the Fed has moved dovishly 
in, in my view, uh, much earlier than I had initially expected, have they actually managed to engineer a soft landing by using forward guidance, by using their dot plot to inject some easing into this market? That actually reduces my probability of a 2020 recession. It remains to be seen. So let's talk about the 2020 doom crew, because you walked into the room, Francis, and the first thing you said was, I think of recessions in 2020 and you guys always come at me. So let's talk about it. Why 2020? What's so special about 2020? So 2020 isn't actually a year where something blows up. It's not a 2008 scenario. It's a year where the models signal to us that the combination of fiscal tightening, monetary policy tightening, and some tariffs weigh on GDP, and we get close to about 0%. And this is where the decimals start to matter. And this is why I actually care about geopolitical risk more in 2020 than I did two years ago, because this is a year where decimal points will matter, where the math will matter if we actually slip into sub-0% growth. So there was another group of people at the back end of 2018 that said, look out for 2019. What's going to happen here is we're going to return towards trend growth. And as the economy decelerates back towards trend growth, there's going to be some people that confuse that for a trip towards a recession. Now, I'm trying to work out whether this is a trip back towards trend growth or a trip towards recession. How do you get the clarity between the two things as to where we're heading. Well, in this case, we're both right. So 2019 is a trip back down and deceleration. My concern is those who call for 2019 recession. There's still a lot of fiscal stimulus in this pipeline. The bigger confusion isn't 2019 recession or 2020 recession. It's what happened in Q4 and Q1. We have seen substantial distortions to the economic data in Q1. I don't think they lift until we start getting March data, which is only going to come through in the middle of April. But to me, starting in that segment, you are going to see a re acceleration of Q2, Q3, and the recessionistas might back off that pedal a bit. But let's keep our timelines very clear here. We still have some breathing room before the 2020 negative growth prints. Financial conditions materially looser over the last several months off the back of all of this. We now have a rates market that is pricing rate cuts. Do you think that's a little bit too premature? Or do you think that's the right move here? I have a different perspective on how the market is looking at rate cuts. So let's say I think we have like 30 basis points yep. priced in for 2019. To me, that's not the market saying we have one and change cuts. It's the market saying we have about a 30% probability of a 100 basis point move. Because if the Fed moves in 2020, it's not going to be by 25 basis points. That's not going to be enough. When you're this close to the zero lower bound, you've got a shock and awe. It's going to be three to four cuts if they choose to go that route. Let's go back six months. Do we have wage inflation? We certainly have wage inflation. It's in Which means everything every else point. is deflating. Is that what I'm getting here? No, it means that it's not filtering through into our CPI or PPI data Why? to the same extent. A variety of structural factors, globalization, the inability to pass on these cost pressures that come through. Right. We'll probably see it in margins with about a nine-month lag. But the question is, even if we were to see 2 or 2.5% two PCE, would the Fed respond? I don't think so. We just had David Kelly in with Michael Ferroli's great work at J.P. Morgan on the new terminal rate. Is this 2% bogey on inflation a nostalgic thing of the past? Absolutely. Does it need to be set at 1.8 or something like that? In my view, probably. I mean, look at the city surprise index on inflation, not the economic one, but the inflation right, right, one. Right, right, we have right. seen eight years where inflation data has come in below economist expectations. John, eight John, years. The only reason Frances Donald brings up the city surprise index is because she and Tobias Lefkovich are the biggest Montreal Canadian fans in the I was business. waiting for us to get to ice hockey. You know, it's just it's got nothing to do with, with Citigroup and everything to do Francis with Francis is fluent in, in ice Montreal. hockey. She is. So I actually saw Tobias earlier this week, and the two things we talked about were the Montreal Canadiens and the Fed. What was the most interesting <laughs> The most important one was the Montreal Canadiens. 
Well, in be- in both cases, I think we have some concerns leading forward into next year. Yeah, but but let's well, let's take this forward. Montreal was terrible last year, and full disclosure, folks, I bleed Mont- les habitants. But they've really done a lot better this year. Is that where the Fed is six months from now? <laughs> no, I, I think the Fed needs to put itself on the sidelines. If the Fed can be successful, I think Mr. Powell agrees with you. And so when I hear that there's days like today's with a significant amount of Fed speak, I get a little okay. nervous. I don't want to see a lot of Fed speak. I want the Fed out of the picture so that risk assets can rally. I'm looking at yields. John mentions his sophisticated uh, yield curve inversion, which he does on the Real Yield 1 p.m. on Fridays. That's all great, but what it means is more financial repression for our listeners, right? I mean, it just continues forward. Yeah, I mean, yield curve inversion, what is it telling us that we didn't already know? Growth expectations are low, the Fed's on the sidelines, and there isn't a lot of inflation. Sure, there are probably some distortions here. I'm sure you've had dozens of guests that explain that the level might not be as indicative as it has in the past, but a flat or inverted yield curve is telling us what we should already see in the data, which is that we're end cycle, the Fed may have gone too far and is probably done. So, Francis, you've come on the program before with us and said there's three puts to this market, the Federal Reserve, trade talks, and Chinese stimulus. Any of those three right now that you have some confidence that you think could push back your base case of a 2020 recession? So the Fed move came earlier than I was expecting. We didn't see a you know rate hike in 2019 starting about early March based on the paradigm shift within the Fed towards average inflation. My concern right now is that there might be a little bit too much optimism in that China put story, that it's probably mostly in the price. I hear a lot of analysts tell me that we're going to see a U-shaped or V-shaped recovery in China. To me, it looks a little bit more like a stabilization. By the end of this year, if we don't get that V-shaped recovery, there could be some disappointment. Are they pushing their disinflation and goods deflation out to the rest of the world? They have, and they have done it for years. They will probably continue to do it. I think this is an interesting sideline story that should gain more attention yeah. into 2019. China is about to enter deflation by PPI measures. We feel that in the United States. We feel that globally. This is a massive deflationary shock. I'm sure it's part of the reason why the Fed said, you know what, we're not going to get to 2% average inflation in 2019 or 2020. And through the weekend, we get the PMIs for China and into next week too. So some really interesting data points coming from the Chinese side of the- I, I, I'm, I'm not days, a Tom. fan of PMIs, but I must admit they're important right now, nation well, to nation. I'm not a fan of them either, except for the fact that out of China, we have so little real-time activity trackers mm-hmm. that it's probably yeah. one of our best bet. Okay. I would actually watch that employment sub-index within it as a good sense of what's happening to the jobs yeah. growth there. Francis Donald, thank Thanks, you Francis. so much with Manulac. Great, great, great update as well. Let's go right over to Foreign Exchange. Jane Foley with us right now. Jane Foley, let me set it up. DXY, blended dollar index stronger, yen not doing much. Euro maybe going through 112. And all of a sudden, emerging markets perking up weaker as well. Of that set, what are you focused on? Well, to be honest, most of what you just said uh, points to me that the dollar can remain really quite firm because in an environment where you see emerging markets looking wobbly, that is suggestive of of a lack of confidence in the market. We've seen that, of course, in in stocks too. Then investors have to make a decision about uh, where else are they going to go. If they're worried about uh, risk appetite, they're pulling back on on their risk. They generally come back into safe assets. They come back into G10 currencies. And generally, of course, 
the safe havens are the yen and, and the Swiss franc, but when you've got negative yields in, in those, the dollar to many people may look like a better safe haven. That's certainly what happened, I think, last year when we saw a sell-off in an emerging market, and I think that's, again, what we're seeing right now. So, Jane, is you know, the Brexit continues to wind its way through a parliament. It seems like we're maybe getting a little bit closer. I hasten to, to say that. Uh, what is your call on sterling, given, you know, we have, a, it seems like there might be a, a a real path here, a split in the path where there, there's hard Brexit is still on the table, but they seem to be making some progress. How do you think the pound reacts here either way? Well, you know, we, we saw yesterday that the pound, or at least, you know, cable dipping to the, the lowest levels of the week uh, yesterday. And this is on disappointment that the MPs had their, their votes last night on, on eight uh, amendments, and there wasn't a majority for a single one. And that seemed to disappoint the market. Investors, I think, were hoping for some solid direction for an alternative to Theresa May's plan, which, of course, we know MPs don't like. So... The market was disappointed, but actually I'm not as disappointed as perhaps uh, the value of sterling would, would suggest because I think some progress was made. I think what we've seen perhaps is uh, uh, the the, uh, the plan about a potential customs union and this of course is a, is a, is a trade arrangement with, with Europe seem to get more support than, than the others. And this might again see some progress over the weekend as MPs get together and they talk about common ground. And, and I think by, by Monday we might have a clearer view um, about the potential alternatives for a Brexit deal. But of course we must remember that legally as it's positioned the UK is going to leave um, um, in a couple of weeks' time the EU, and we need a change in, in law in order to avoid that. So, that, as you just rightly pointed out, that threat of a no deal Brexit is still hanging over the heads of Australian yeah. investors and, and will limit any, any recovery. Where's the EM opportunity right now, Jane Foley? Well, I think that's a, that's a difficult question given the environment that we're in. I mean, certainly I would be very cautious about EM. Um, the market has been nervous about global growth. We see Turkey playing out in the backdrop. We've got elections there in a couple of weeks. The market is extremely nervous. And when you've got a, a big EM player like that, Turkey, really looking extremely yeah, but, ugly, and you've got that on top of global growth, I think it's a very nervous environment. You know, away from the idiosyncratic, so I got, I got a four print on Brazilian real, and I got Argentinian peso out pushing 44. Come on, there's, there's sort of a group tendency here, isn't there? Well, there is. There is. And, and, and to be honest, I think, you know, the wise investors are always going to look through uh, the, the, the bigger picture and, and pick out the, um, the countries that are doing better where you see the economy. Well, pick better. out for us. Where is it? Well, you know, again, a large part of this comes down to what happens with China and uh, U.S. and the trade negotiations. Some countries could benefit from agriculture down there. Um, and again, it depends which way it's going to swing it. If, if China, again, is picking up buying uh, soybeans from the U.S., then maybe there isn't going to be the benefit for yeah. um, other Latin American countries, which there could be. So there is, there's, there's a lot of, of risk here. There's a lot of um, uh, potential outcomes. And, yeah. and a lot of these are a really big picture. Your event. Amazing. Jane Foley, thank you so much. Wonderful update with Robo Bank. Just always advantage when she's on. Do you want to bring in our esteemed guest? Absolutely. Um, you know, obviously, um, we are, are here at the Bloomberg Equality Summit, broadcasting live from uh, the link at our world headquarters here in uh, Lexington Avenue and 59th Street. And we think about Hollywood. It's been said that Hollywood is one of the least welcoming industries for women. And I love this 
point that I think our guests made. Even the coal industry does a better job uh, dealing, <laughs> being accepting and supportive of women than does Hollywood. So to help us kind of dig through this issue, we welcome our, our guest, Maria Geis. She is a writer and director. Maria, thanks so much for joining us here at Bloomberg. How did it ever get so bad for women in Hollywood? What's the history there? Well, let's see. Let's start with what Hollywood does today. I mean, Hollywood pays out $7 billion in wages every year. It creates 80% of the media content that's distributed globally, and it helps form our cultural narrative through the stories that are told there. This is an incredibly powerful industry, and it's run by a very small group of mostly white liberal men. Um, the history of of Hollywood as told so beautifully in the film by Tom Donahue called This Changes Everything, right. screened here uh, last night, um, shows that in the pioneer days of, of Hollywood, which began in 1896 with the invention of the movie camera, the cinematograph, um, in, in invited women in. And there were lots and lots of women directors, writers, and producers uh, up until the big money came in. And as soon as the big Wall Street money came in, women got pushed out. So we really saw almost no women in the industry as storytellers from about 1930 until 1979, after the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the women's lib movement of the 1970s. And then we began to see some shift. So really, one can look at this as an economic issue, uh, a battle for resources. It's a patriarchy. Have, has the so to what extent has the Me Too? This is just recent history. To what extent has the Me Too movement? Do you think going going to impact Hollywood going forward? Because it seems well, to be the, the epicenter of the, uh, the Me Too. <laughs> the Me Too movement um, came in based on the work of the ACLU and the EEOC. So on October 6, twenty fifteen, the EEOC, the Equal Rights. Um, Commission of the United States Department of Justice uh, started an investigation for women directors in Hollywood. And uh, two years later, almost to the day, on October 5th, 2017, the New York Times finally had right. Right. the cojones to publish the exposés on Harvey Weinstein, incidentally, that they had been holding on to since 2004 for 13 years. So when Hillary Clinton was, and the Clintons were no longer in power, and Trump was now in power, uh, the major media was emboldened to publish these stories. It was a watershed moment, there's no question about it, but I believe, you know, also right. a diversion <clears throat> because Hollywood has been able to use Me Too and the stories of sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace right. and actresses to um, control the narrative. And that's what they're doing. Because when you talk about equal employment opportunity law and the enforcement of title, federal enforcement right. of Title VII in Hollywood, you're talking about fundamentally right. a redistribution okay. of jobs from men to women. And that is something that Hollywood doesn't want. You, very quickly here, just because of time, you came out of UCLA. There's other combines of screenwriting and directing around the world. Out of Tish came Adam Bowden and Ryan Fleck. And they're doing Captain Marvel in, in that. Do women have to advance and succeed going from small movies and working up the food chime over, like you did, frankly, or can they jump in now at a higher level? 
basically, budget. the way it stands right now, women directed, in 2013, women were directing 13% of episodic TV shows, 4% of studio features. So is it going to come and through TV and, and through Amazon and Netflix no, and the rest no, of it? No, that fundamentally what is happening here <laughs> is that women can work if they work for free. Women are doing the lower end of, the, it, it's, it's the exception. And it's what Jennifer the, the Lawrence said four years ago, she's sick of being adorable. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah. it's that simple. Yeah, that women need to demand their rights under our law. Do you see that changing over the grill at the Beverly Hills Hilton or, or at the Sunset Tower Hotel? Is the dynamic changing? Um, I think that there is a great deal of pressure right now on the industry. I think the federal investigation and the work of the ACLU rocked the industry to its core, and they're worried about lawsuits. And so um, they're going to move those numbers up through inside efforts, uh, but those right. will have not historically <clears throat> proven to be is, enduring. Is Disney Fox good for women? Is James Murdoch and the rest of them out there with Mr. Iger at, at Disney Fox and the new combination? Nobody's is good? good for women. Nobody is good for women. Yeah. All, all of these the organizations that make up Hollywood, including the unions, the talent agencies, the studios, and the networks, streaming giants, they all need to be challenged by, the, by, by illegal action. Is that coming? Is that forthcoming, do you think? Legal action. I, uh, my belief is because the EEOC has been um, conducting this investigation and perhaps has been in settlement talks for three years and yep. four months, six months almost, and we um, don't know what is going on with that because uh, they function in total confidentiality. However, we have been, a small group of us have been working very, very hard to move this into the court system, right. and I do believe that that is the necessary mm -hmm. thing. This needs to end up in the Supreme Court. Right. It sounds like uh, it sounds like pressure is uh, building. It sounds like the Me Too movement might might accelerate that. So very interesting. Maria Geis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you uh, so Maria much. Maria is a writer and director. She joins us here talking about this equality issue in Hollywood, which, again, a very, very difficult place historically uh, for women to do well, even harder than the coal industry, believe it or not. But hopefully change is coming to Hollywood. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.